0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Fertility rates have fallen nationwide. What are the factors behind this? Is it tied to women having more freedom to choose when to have a family? Does economic insecurity play a part? Later, we'll speak to a Harvard researcher about the relationship between a woman's education level and childbearing. Now, earlier this year, Where We Live spoke with the Pew Research Center about its report, which found 15% of American women in their mid-40s were childless, the lowest point in 20 years. The long-term trend was in part due to delays in childbearing related to increasing educational attainment and women's labor force participation. Today, Where We Live, we wanted to now focus on the stories of Connecticut women who want children but are delaying having them. Just ahead, an OB-GYN will join us to talk about how she counsels women who've decided to postpone pregnancy for a number of reasons. Are you one of them? We want to hear from you. First, how does corporate America view pregnant women and mothers? According to a New York Times investigation, pregnancy discrimination has increased among some of America's biggest companies. Have you experienced pregnancy discrimination where you work? Join our conversation 860-275-7266. You can email us where we live at wmpr.org. and as always find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Now joining us for more on the New York Times investigation is the newspaper's economy reporter Natalie Kitchrowff. She's joining us by phone today. Natalie, welcome to the show.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: I wanted to find out why did you look into pregnancy discrimination? When, what were you hearing from raiders Or I'm just curious about uh, the, uh, the beginning of this series that you did.
3: Sure. So um, my co-writer and I were hearing stories of pregnancy discrimination on our own beats. Um, at the same time, there was this explosion in Me Too coverage. And we saw these examples of pregnancy discrimination as a potential source of an obstacle that was pervasive, um, as if not more pervasive, as sexual harassment. And we, that's when we, come ac- we came across Otisha Woolbright, a Walmart worker um, who had asked for light duty, um, and her story convinced us that this was something we had to pursue.
0: Uh, When you uh, came across uh, Otisha, I'm curious uh, about the lawsuits that you've also reviewed. I mean, how many are we talking about? How widespread is this?
3: So there were a little over 3,100 complaints with the EEOC um, last year, which is, you know, that's hovering near an all-time high. This is despite, you know, obviously corporate America has rolled out. Cushy sort of maternity leave policies, there's been an effort to try to be more welcoming to um, mothers and to try to retain them. Um, but we've seen that the inst- incidence of pregnancy discrimination seems to have gone up. Um, we looked at class action lawsuits that, um, you know, covered, we're talking tens of thousands of women here. Um, so it's pretty widespread. And, and we also, after the story published, we heard from just hundreds of readers. Um, It was an outpouring um, of responses from women who had experienced something along these
0: lines. Now, you uh, mentioned Otisha Woolbrights. This was a woman that was employed by Walmart. Uh, Your uh, investigation also looked at stories of women working in white-collar jobs. Uh, Tell us about how this discrimination manifests itself uh, depending on the type of job or a workplace that a woman uh, was an employee of.
3: Right, so if you 're in a low wage job that requires physical labor and this can also be blue collar jobs you know jobs that pay a little bit more, um, the way that pregnancy discrimination plays out can be blatant. It can be someone asking for an accommodation from heavy lifting you know they don 't they want lighter duty or they want to transfer away from chemicals that they 're working or they want more rest breaks or they want, want to be able to carry water around the workplace, and an employer will deny that request and not just deny that request, but then, you know, retaliate against the worker for asking for it, sometimes fire them, cut their hours, cut their pay. Um, So that's a really kind of blatant form of discrimination. In office towers and white collar jobs, what you're seeing is often much more subtle, and it can be hard to put your finger on. Um, These are sort of women who, as soon as they start to show as soon as they announce a pregnancy or even, you know, when they come back from maternity leave, they're finding themselves sidelined, pushed away from prestigious assignments, not invited to client meetings, you know, or setting up the table at a meeting that they used to lead. Um, These kinds of... The consequences, again, you know, they pile up, and when you look at the patterns that we observed at some of these workplaces, they seem to add up to discrimination.
0: When we look at pregnancy discrimination uh, in these uh, different uh, companies, uh, Natalie, uh, the people that uh, are the managers are the supervisors. Is it mostly men? Is it also women that are discriminating against uh, pregnant uh, staff?
3: It's. Both men and women. Um, we were um, not surprised, but we, we noted um, that women managers were, seemed to be just as likely as, as men to, to do this kind of thing.
0: This is where we live. On the phone with me, Natalie Kittreweff, economy reporter for The New York Times. She and Jessica Silver-Greenberg investigated pregnancy discrimination for The Times. Um, If this is something that you've experienced while on the job, we want to hear from you, Uh, 860-275-7266. Natalie, uh, one of the women you profiled again, Otisha Woolbright. Tell us about her story, what she experienced at Walmart.
3: So, Otisha worked at the deli and the bakery in a Walmart in Florida. Um, She lifted heavy trays of chicken um, every day. Um, She started bleeding one day, went to the doctor. The doctor told her, you need to stop doing this heavy lifting. So, she brought a note back in and and requested uh, a reprieve. Uh, Her manager um, told her that she had seen... Demi Moore do a somersault on national TV when she was nearly full term, and so being pregnant wasn't an excuse for Otisha. Meanwhile, we got Demi Moore to comment for the story. It was a stunt double that did this, um that did the, these acrobatics on the David Letterman show, Um but no matter this, um this response meant that Otisha kept lifting. Eventually she gets hurt, she asks for maternity leave, she gets fired. She asks about maternity leave, unrelated to her getting hurt. She kept working um, through her pregnancy, kept lifting. Um, she asks about maternity one, le- one day. Uh, a couple days later, she's told that Walmart will no longer be needing her services. Um, she joins. She's right now among um, several women who are suing Walmart for alleged pregnancy discrimination.
0: And we have a clip from Otisha. This is from the New York Times, uh, The Daily. Let's take a listen. I was so devastated.
4: I was just like thinking, what am I going to do? Because I was, you know, a single parent. I had three kids. I had this baby on the way. Why nobody going to hire a seven-month pregnant woman? Who was going to do that? I did everything that they ever asked me to do. And when they let me go, I was so sad and I was so,
0: I was so hurt. Again, that's Otisha Woolbright, uh, one of the women uh, that Natalie uh, interviewed uh, for her investigation, as well as Jessica Silver Greenberg's investigation of pregnancy discrimination in uh, corporate America. Uh, what happened to Otisha? Uh, this is again a woman you can hear in her voice that this was a job she cared about, and when uh, she felt like maybe she wasn't being treated fairly at that moment in time, she had also had other kids that she had, you know, to support. It's not so easy to find a new job. She, it took her
3: a year to find another job, um, and even then, you know, it was a job that paid less than her Walmart job, um, and right now, um, she's, as as far as I know, not working. Um, the hours at a van rental company where she was working were just too difficult to keep, and they weren't giving her the kinds of hours that she needed to be able to take care of, you know, as you heard, um, her children. So um, she's struggling right now. She's still struggling, and she became very depressed after this happened to her. Um, so um, she's struggling both financially and emotionally.
0: What are the federal protections uh, for uh, women who are pregnant and want to keep their jobs, Natalie? And and if there are protections, why is this still happening in certain uh, in certain uh, companies?
3: So the law on the books, the Pregnancy Discrimination Act says that employers have to accommodate pregnant women to the extent that they accommodate workers who are similar in their ability or their inability to work. Um, that sounds like jargon, but what it essentially says is if you 're doing this for other people who are like pregnant women, then you have to accommodate pregnant women that didn't really that doesn 't solve the problem for many women like Otisha because employers have argued in court that pregnant women are more like people who get injured off the job um you know employers don't cause people to be injured off the job and they don't cause people to be pregnant so you know um why should they have to accommodate them um that you know is being challenged in court obviously right now walmart is being sued so, you know, the the issue here is that the federal law does not provide an affirmative right to protection. It doesn't say you must accommodate women. Now, there are laws in several states in about two dozen states that are much stronger. But right now, the federal law in the books um, leaves some room for interpretation, which gets to your question of, how this can still happen. Now, to be clear, it is being challenged in court, and that Walmart case is going to be a test of of that law.
0: You mentioned it now falls on on states if they want to have stronger protections for pregnant women. Uh, Connecticut has a new uh, law signed into law in 2017 uh, that enhances existing anti-discrimination protections for pregnant employees, um, provides broad definitions of the terms pregnancy, reasonable accommodations, and and undue hardship. Uh, Natalie, you also Profiled some women, as you mentioned earlier, uh, who work in white collar jobs and this idea of being sidelined, uh, passed over for promotions. Uh, can you talk a little bit about some of those women that you profiled?
3: Right. So we we looked at um, several sort of, of of the you know white collar firms in America where this happens um, or where women say this is happening. Um, One was at Merck, um, the pharmaceutical giant, and we talked to a woman there, Rachel Mountis, who was a rising star before she got pregnant. Um, She was a a saleswoman with a prestigious assignment. Um, She was winning awards. Um, She gets pregnant, and she's informed that as a part of a general downsizing, um, her job is being eliminated, so she is laid off three weeks before she gives birth. we talked to another woman, Erin Murphy, at the um, commodities trading giant Glencore. Um, and, m- again, Erin was a star. She was a senior employee um, coordinating the movement of oil um, for traders there. She also was doing very well. Was um, and and after she got pregnant, she was belittled on the trading floor. Um, her manager told her having a, a kid would definitely plateau her career. When she mentioned potentially getting poached by another company, he said, um, you're old and having babies, so there's nowhere for you to go. Um, she had to pump breast milk in a supply closet that was cluttered with recycling bins, um, you know, he made comments about you know a woman's brain after pregnancy um this is her boss um she's suing that company and she's she's still going to work every day there right now um so it's an awkward situation but yes you know for these women and again in these office jobs um i guess it depends on on your your vantage point about how subtle that stuff is but they certainly felt as though they had become sort of second-class citizens at both Merck and Glencore um, after they became pregnant.
0: Because it's a subtle uh, discrimination. Is it harder to prove that that's what uh, these employers are doing to these women?
3: I think it, well, it remains to be seen how it plays out in court. The The strength of, for example, the um, what the women have on their side in the Merck case is that um, and, and Merck is actually not being sued for pregnancy discrimination. It's for, um, dis, you know, um, disparities in pay um, and, and in promotions. Um, th- there are a lot of women um, involved in that case, um, you know, and, and so patterns are really what we're talking about here. Um, you know, one or two instances, you know, instances, can, it, it can be hard to, to marshal that as evidence of discrimination. But, you know, in Erin's case, she had many, many, many examples um, that she's citing in her lawsuit. And so, you know, I'm not a lawyer, and I'm, you know, I have no position on either of those cases, but. I think that that what the women are trying to do is to show um, that this didn't just happen once or twice.
0: When we look, we know that there's a wage gap uh, for women in in the workplace, but when we look at women who uh, become pregnant or mothers uh, in certain jobs, what do we know about where their pay, uh, where their salary stacks up against a a male colleague?
3: So the research is very clear on this. Um, When a woman has a child, it shaves 4% off of her hourly wages. And every child that a woman has shaves 4% off of her wages. That doesn't happen for a man. When a man has a kid, he gets a pay bump of 6%. So what you're seeing is what researchers, what sociological researchers have termed the motherhood penalty um, and what they also term the fatherhood bonus
0: because they 're seen as men are seen as uh, being the breadwinner, so they they need the, the the salary bump
3: right so the you know so they 've looked at why this happens, and um, mothers being absent from work taking time off that explains some of this, but it doesn't explain all of this um, and what researchers have found is that there's this pervasive bias against mothers and against pregnant women so visibly pregnant women are rated in these studies as less reliable, less dependable, more irrational and less committed to their jobs. And you know, so the the researchers say that men have a different perception when they they engender a different perception when they when they become fathers. They're now responsible caretakers of families who as you said need extra money to be able to care for them. The irony, of course, is that women are more and more becoming the breadwinners in American families. So this perception is outdated. Many of the women that we talked to were the primary earners in their family. So, um, you know, the the perception is all off and the penalty that results can have, you know, it doesn't just affect a woman, it affects her whole sort of family.
0: Uh, we should uh, tell our listeners, uh, since uh, the New York Times investigation uh, was reported, now New York State has launched an investigation into several companies because of your reporting. Uh, lastly, uh, Natalie, uh, we started the conversation about what prompted uh, you and your colleagues to look at this issue, and it came out of the Me Too movement. Looking looking at workplace discrimination, we're seeing that uh, there are uh, behaviors and actions that uh, more people are now realizing are not acceptable in the workplace. When when, uh, when, you when you talk with all of these uh, these uh, people and hear their stories, um, what needs to change for uh, the corporate America to treat mothers and pregnant women with the same uh, respect as their male colleagues?
3: So I think the comparison to the Me Too movement is important here. I think with Me Too, what we saw was behaviors that we all sort of deemed the cost of doing business or just necessary hardships that we all go through to be able to kind of work through our days. Um, small things, you know, things that we might not complain about or mention um, beyond a sort of talking to our friends. Those things turned into things that we decided as a society are kind of unacceptable, that we, that, that we don't want to live and we don't want to work in a corporate America where that is passable, where that is okay. Um, I think these lawsuits have the potential to change things for the women who work at these companies. And certainly, Walmart is the largest employer in the country. And I think, you know, retailers are watching what happens with this case and thinking about their own policies. But I, I do think that um, the reason we saw some change with Me Too was that there was this broader cultural shift. And I don't know that that you'll see a kind of really sweeping change until there's that kind of recognition um, about how we are treating pregnant workers in America.
0: Natalie Kittrow-F is economy reporter for The New York Times. She and colleague Jessica Silver-Greenberg investigated reporting on pregnancy discrimination. We'll tweet out links to those stories at Where We Live. Natalie, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Up next, are you a Connecticut woman who wants to have children but has delayed starting a family? We want to hear from you, 860-275-7266. And coming up, we're going to hear from an OBGYN about the types of conversations she's having with women who are postponing having children. That's after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. A recent story from the Connecticut Health Investigative Team reported that Connecticut's fertility rate is 53.4 births per 1,000 women between the ages of 15 to 44. This rate is among the lowest nationwide, according to data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or the CDC. But that stat doesn't tell the whole story. There's actually an increase among Connecticut women over the age of 30 who are actually having more babies. Now, some of the reasons include women have pushed off starting a family due to earning advanced degrees. We're going to talk about more about the correlation between education and childbearing later in the show. But for the women who are opting to wait, what kinds of conversations are they having with their doctors? Are you a woman who wants to have children but have pushed it off? We want to hear why. Join our conversation, 860 275 Or on the flip side, did you decide to have children at a young age? And how has that decision affected your life, your career? That number again, 860 uh, 275 Later, we're going to talk about the risks women face uh, if they try to conceive after a certain age. I know when I became pregnant with my first child, I was amused to find uh, that at 35, I was advanced maternal age. And at one point, uh, that was called geriatric pregnancy. I'm glad it's not uh, called that anymore. But conversation now in studio is Dr. Amanda Callan, assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology, specializing in reproductive and endocrinology and infertility at Yale School of Medicine. Dr. Callan, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, So when we talk about the general fertility rate, what exactly are we talking about there?
2: So the the general fertility rate is this um, uh, way to sort of quantify the number of births in a specific population And so what we're looking at for fertility rate is actually the number of live births per 1,000 women, um, specifically aged 15 to 44. That's in contrast to this idea of the birth rate, which is the Um, number of births per a 1,000 people in the population, but that includes obviously children and men and people who aren't going to be conceiving. So the fertility rate sort of drills down on the number we care about more. And
0: the general fertility rate um, uh, annually, looking at the...
2: Yes. Yep. The numbers are calculated annually.
0: So when we we hear that Connecticut is among the lowest uh, in terms of fertility rate,
2: why is that? So... It's a great question, and there's there's multiple reasons we think that is. I mean, first of all, I think um, it's helpful to understand that birth rates are declining and fertility rates are declining across the nation. Um, The national average uh, in 2016 was 62 62, uh, out of every 1,000, and so those numbers are going down nationally. Um, Connecticut is certainly lower than the national average, but it's not... Unique in New England, actually, all of the unique, all of the New England states are low, and so we're sort of in this cohort of uh, low birth rate states. Um, The other thing I think is important to to note is that the Connecticut's number actually has gone up since 2015. So in 2015 we were uh, 52.5, and and in 2016 we're 53.4. So it's stable, Mm -hmm. uh, although we are low. And I think um, you can, you know, I'm not an epidemiologist, but you can speculate on multiple reasons for that. Um, certainly, um, uh, there's an increasing uh, average age of first time mothers. So this idea that you were talking about previously of delaying childbearing and waiting longer to have your first child. Um, you know, there's been speculation that perhaps an aging population in Connecticut maybe have something to do with it. Uh, this correlation between, Uh, median income and uh, demographic factors and delaying childbearing. Um, And this idea, as you said, career and economic factors, so education, uh, wanting to sort of get established in a career or finish out a particular segment of education before having children, Um, And then certainly economic factors as well, I think, are all things that I'm seeing uh, from a physician standpoint that people are talking about as reasons why they're waiting.
0: Uh, One of the, the, I guess, the good things about when we look at the fertility rate uh, here in Connecticut and nationwide is there are fewer teen pregnancies.
2: Yes. So the, um, if you, again, if you parse out the data and you look at Uh, younger versus um, uh, more advanced reproductive age women. If you look at the 15 to even um, 24 age category, um, pregnancy rates have actually gone down. And then if you look at the 35 to 44 age group, pregnancy rates have actually gone up. So we're seeing this really nice decrease in teen pregnancy rates, which is great. And then we're seeing actually an increase in pregnancy rates among women over 35, which, again, I think reflects this idea of uh, some delay in childbearing and some um, uh, increasing age at the first birth. Um,
0: If you're one of those women who've decided to push off uh, becoming pregnant until uh, you've reached a certain point in your career, or maybe you're over 35, uh, we want to hear from you, 860-275-7266. Maggie is calling in. Uh, Maggie, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Hi. Uh, Thanks for your call. Tell us uh, the decisions uh, that you made surrounding starting a family.
5: Sure. So I'm 30 years old.
0: I've been married for three years. Um, And we have decided to put off
5: having children um, for several more years. And I would say there's really two reasons for that. Um, The first is just the rising cost to raise children the way we'd like to, and that includes providing college education for our children, I'm a little biased because I am a financial advisor, but I do so I do understand that um, you know college tuition is rising on average three percent per year, and so if we're looking at in-state on-campus tuition for UConn, for instance, in 18 years we're looking at probably around 50,000. So um, my husband and I are definitely thinking about that as we're starting a family. The second would be, which was already mentioned, is career development. So I'm on, on track to become partner, and my husband's defending his Ph.D. next month. And if either of us want to be able to take off some time to raise a child, um, even a few months once the child's born, which obviously a mother at the very least has to do, um, we want to be in a place in our careers where we're able to do that. And then lastly is just the rising cost of health care. So, again, I think my profession makes me a little biased because I see this a lot, but um, you know, an uncomplicated birth from my understanding in Connecticut, um, is about $8,000. And if you have a high deductible plan of 10000 or $15,000, know, you have to be ready to, to shell out several thousand dollars before the insurance is going to really cover it. So there are pretty much financial reasons um, not to say we're not going to do it, we just want to plan ahead of time.
0: Well, Maggie, thank you uh, for your call. Again, you can join our conversation eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. Dr. Callan, uh, Maggie laid out uh, very specific reasons about why uh, they waited uh, to have children. Is this what you're hearing from some of your patients?
2: Absolutely. And that um, conversation is is similar to conversations I'm having every day. So, you know part of uh, what I do in my field is uh, treat infertility, but also we manage other issues and in, in sort of managing those other issues, Um, These conversations come up about uh, childbearing and what's the right time and what's happening to fertility over time. And um, women are telling me about these absolute same pressures, economic pressures, um, you know, wanting to – understanding the high cost of childbearing, understanding what happens when you have a child, that cost, especially if both parents are working, that cost of daycare. Yeah, daycare is like another mortgage. It's so expensive. (laughs) Um, And so – Uh, Certainly, people are talking about that, you know, again, trying to finish out a career. I know in my own personal experience, that was a part of my own personal decision, was trying to wait until I finished all of my medical schooling. And so um, I can certainly empathize with those decisions as well. And it's absolutely um, a large part of the conversation we're having.
0: Uh, Today, we're looking at uh, the choices women are making when uh, they're thinking about starting a family. And we want to hear from you, 860-275-7266. Elena is calling from Mystic. Elena, go ahead.
6: Uh, Hello. Um, I also delayed having a child uh, because of um, two factors. One, that we wanted to make sure we were financially established. And also, um, the second reason was that I was getting advanced degrees. And I have to laugh because um, I had my son at the age of 37, and I was also considered an advanced maternal age. uh, Welcome to the club. (laughs) Yes, thank you very much. Um, which struck me as absolutely ironic. Um, And, you know, now I'm, he's now nine years old, and I'm 46, and um, I still have, you know, my degrees, which I'm never going to regret getting, but it's been much more difficult to return to the workforce after having a child, Uh, that people are not, companies and places are just not as accommodating to uh, mothers as they could be.
0: Elena, earlier we talked to the New York Times about their investigation in pregnancy discrimination. Is, some, is this something that you or other women you know have experienced?
6: I, to a degree, I would say yes. Um, I was, uh, I will keep the, my details the um, limited, but I was in a position to take on a much more advanced position And when I told my supervisor that I was pregnant, uh, I was fairly much—that was—I was was eliminated from consideration for that position.
0: Well, Elena, thank you uh, for for your call. Uh, Again, uh, today we're talking about uh, the choices that women are making uh, to postpone. It could be uh, feelings of economic insecurity. Uh, Maybe they want to advance a certain point in their career, and they know that a lot comes with um, having children. And you can join our conversation at 860-275-7266. Dr. Uh, Amanda Callen is with us, assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Yale School of Medicine. Uh, What are the risks when women uh, decide, and they have the, the, the right to decide along with their partners, of when they're going to have children, if they even want to have children. But when you reach uh, that advanced maternal age at 35, or we hear that more women are having babies after 40, what are the risks to conceiving in the first place?
2: So there's a few different things that we, we think about in terms of um, uh, risks in pregnancy and also the the very real risk of not actually being able to conceive as you wait Um we know that um, women are born with all of the eggs that they will ever have, and so that you you can almost think of it as a basket of eggs, and that basket mm-hmm. of eggs will dwindle over time. And so, by the time a woman reaches menopause, that basket is essentially empty. Um, and so, as that basket starts to dwindle, the chance of pregnancy in a particular month um, decreases. To the you know, in the twenties and thirties, you're talking about. Um, uh, fairly high pregnancy rates and in, in late 30s early 40s pregnancy rates become quite low. Um, the other thing that happens is that the, um, the genetic material in each of those eggs is also aging and so we see that um, the increase in um, you know birth defects things like Down syndrome um, miscarriage because of uh, you know eggs or embryos that have genetic uh, abnormalities increases over time. And so there's a couple of factors that make it more difficult to get pregnant with age. One is that decreasing number of age and, and uh, decreasing number of eggs. And two is the um, increased potential for those eggs and embryos to be abnormal. And so those factors really um, pair together to make it uh, to, to, to lead to a decreased pregnancy rate over mm-hmm. time. That rate really starts to drop um, around 35 and the, the rate of drop becomes even more accelerated around uh, 37, 38. Um, and we do see women more in our office at, at those ages who are um, starting to think about conceiving. You know, there's there's room for a baby in their lives, um, but it's more difficult at that point. And now we're starting to have to, think, to have to think about assisted reproductive technologies, ovulation induction, IVF, things like that, that can just be um, emotionally and financially difficult. So um, not to be sort of an alarmist, but I think it's important that women... Um, who are making decisions to delay childbearing, be empowered with that information and understand what's happening to reproductive potential over time. Mm-hmm. And then they can, you know, we can make our own decisions with that information.
0: Uh, when we're talking about options uh, for women, uh, something that I, I guess has become trendy in recent years is talking more about uh, freezing e- freezing mm-hmm. their eggs. I wanted to play this clip because it has crossed over in popular culture too. This is from the Mindy Project where uh, character, Dr. Mindy Lahiri, is actually talking to college age women about why they should consider freezing their eggs.
5: When I was your age, I thought that I was going to be married by the time I was 25. But it took a lot longer than that. And unfortunately, your body does not care if you are dating the wrong guy or the guy you're with is also sleeping with the rest of your dorm. Your body and your eggs just keep getting older, which is why freezing them is actually a pretty smart idea because it gives you a little bit more time so that you can try to find that one diamond in the crap heap of American men.
0: Again, that's from uh, the Mindy Project, uh, Dr. Uh, Callan, Is that something that uh, women in their twenties should consider, or is
2: that still a little too early? You know, uh, it, so egg freezing is a is a um, technology that has uh, been around for several years at this point. Um, to the point that it. Um, several years ago was uh, even no longer considered experimental because we know that it works well. We know that eggs freeze well and thaw well, and we can get them, and we can um, sort of stash them away. Um, I would say you know, 20s is probably quite an early time to consider it. Um, Certainly, we have women asking about it in their 20s. As I said, we know that, generally, fertility starts to decline in the mid-30s or so. um, it is something that I think women should be certainly aware of and consider whether it's right for them. Um, but it's costly. It is costly. Um, so egg freezing, you know, can run in the you know, I'd say six to eight to ten thousand dollar range um, to freeze eggs. Um, and it also is a is a time commitment for several weeks. I can certainly you know walk you through the process, but it's um, injections and medical visits and ultrasounds. Um, the other thing I say about egg freezing is that you know for women who choose to freeze their eggs, I I don't want it to be considered as sort of a guarantee. So I don't want someone to think if I freeze my eggs, then I can sort of buy myself an extra five years. I think if for women considering freezing their eggs. You know, if I'm seeing a patient in my office and we're talking about egg freezing, I'm going to talk about the pros and talk about the cons and talk about success rates. Um, But at the end of the day, I want a woman or a couple to make their fertility decisions sort of regardless of these frozen eggs, understanding that they are not a guarantee. Um, and, you know, to proceed on as though the eggs aren't frozen, basically.
0: You can join our conversation, eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. 275 Carrie is calling from Hartford. Carrie, go ahead.
1: Hi, how are you? I'm
0: doing well. So I
1: was just going to comment, um, I'm 38 years old. I had my first child when I was 33. Um, and uh, we have um, foregone having a second child for economic reasons, Um I have an advanced degree, and I, and I own my own business, um, and my husband has a job that works uh, strange hours. And so we have found that because we are what most people consider middle class, our only childcare options are expensive childcare options because we don't qualify for any of the free preschool um, town-run town programs. And so we have just decided that because of the expense of childcare and the interest in furthering our careers, it's just not viable to have a second child, despite the fact that we would like to.
0: Uh, well, thank you, Carrie, uh, for your call. And we have heard that um, from other listeners as well, thinking about you know maybe just having one child. Uh, Dr. Cowan, you wanted to comment?
2: Yeah. And I, I, I think that's an important point that um, your caller is making, the... Um, a lot of the popular narrative about delayed childbearing is about, you know, women and these decisions made by women and, you know, career and and um, you know, education. And I've heard the word selfish tossed around. And I think that the important point here is that these are decisions made by women and by couples, by families. Um, these can be career decisions. These can be economic decisions. These can be decisions based on childcare or you know, based on the um, you know, a recent layoff or all sorts of considerations that come to mind. And they're not selfish decisions at all. I think they're actually very selfless decisions um, for women and families to be deciding on the right time, if there is a right time for, you know, a child to be brought into their life. You can join our conversation. Hester's is uh, calling from New Haven. Hester, go ahead.
0: Yes. Hi. How are you? I'm doing well. What was your experience when you thought about uh, starting a family?
1: My first child was born at 37. My second was born when I was 41 and I was uh, privileged to have access to good education, to advanced education. And I was one of those girls who would never get pregnant to jeopardize any of that. And in hindsight, that was a very big cosmic joke because it turned out I didn't need to worry about any of that. That was not a concern. And my first child was eked out with IUI. And the second one, we went all the way from IVF to ICSI. And I think two things. The first is, it's nice to extend your career, and I'm all for that. I, I had a great time. I love that. But the later you go when your fertility drops down, the toll emotionally, physically, um, psychologically on the couple when fertility process is going down with the, you know, the doctor will, will can probably expand on this. Um, there are many miscarriages. There's hopes. There is... Um, hormonal roller coasters there is everything going on and not all couples survive it mine did luckily but it was it's it's a huge toll and it does affect the whatever family there is and the other thing is i'm wondering if women at particular ages say 30 35 had access to a test i'm not sure if that exists maybe it's a hgc hormone or something like that to say, hey, how fertile are you at this point, or how fast is your fertility declining? Then they could maybe make a more informed
0: decision.
2: Thank you, Hester, for your call, Dr. Callen. Um, so you know, I think I think your your point is a great one about um, really understanding that the process of fertility, you know you might or someone might think that, well, if I wait a certain amount of time, you know, fertility treatments are out there and I can just do IUI, as you referred to, intrauterine insemination or ovulation induction or in vitro fertilization, IVF. Um, uh, the other term ICSI that you used is a way to fertilize eggs, intracytoplasmic um, sperm injection. But sort of this gamut of fertility treatments that are out there um, can be emotionally difficult and financially difficult to pursue. And they're not always successful. And they can be trying for um, women trying for couples. Um, and so I, again, I think it goes back to understanding um, what is happening to fertility o- over time and understanding that the options are out there, but the options are not always successful. Even IVF, you know, as women get into their early 40s, we quote success rates that are in the single digits for IVF, you know, after mm-hmm. 42, 43. So um, to me, the worst situation is when someone comes into my office and she um isn't at all aware that her fertility has declined, and maybe she's 42 or 43 and just thinking about starting a family and no one's really ever had this conversation with her before, that to me is the most difficult situation because then we're talking about um, success rates for fertility treatment that can really be quite low.
0: So if there's uh, one piece of advice that you could give our listeners, is it uh, starting in your 20s, really thinking about uh, maybe being educated on these options
2: and so that you have the most information as possible moving forward? Yeah, I think being aware, being educated, underta- understanding what happens to fertility over time, um, knowing that um, it—you know—the the reproductive challenges can increase, especially in the mid-thirties, late thirties, early forties, certainly, um, and you know the time to you know, consider having a child if you want to have a child or want to bring a child into your life um, is as soon as it's right for you and and not to wait longer than that. And that's such a vague sort of (laughs) wishy-washy answer, I know. Um, But the the time is different for everybody. And just to be aware um, that those challenges can increase.
0: Dr. Amanda Callen is assistant professor and practicing OBGYN at the Yale Fertility Center in New Haven, uh, Connecticut. Uh, Dr. Callen, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpothanschel. Up next, how does a woman's education level impact fertility? We're going to learn more from a Harvard researcher right after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpothanchil. We wanted to learn more about how education correlates with fertility rates. So joining us on the phone now is Dr. Jocelyn Finlay, Senior Research Scientist in the Department of Global Health and Population at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Dr. Finlay, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucy. It's a our pleasure t- to be here. Our time is short with our, the, the number of callers that, uh, that we brought in uh, this hour. But could you explain the relationship b- between education and fertility? Yes,
4: it's really great to hear all the callers calling in and seeing that they're juggling um, education decisions and their fertility and they're really in their later life um, in terms of their fertility, so looking into their 30s. And I feel like this really came from research that was done from Cordia Golden uh, and she was able to explain that the introduction of the pill back in the 60s and 70s was really the first time that women could really reliably complete their college education without fear of getting pregnant mm. well, and so this oh, yeah. oh go ahead continue no it, it just meant that women could then build their aspirations for more highly skilled professions such as doctors lawyers and decision makers in society and it was the first time that they could really think about alternatives uh in their life course so thinking about solid careers and as opposed to Um, just having children and being um, homemakers. Mm.
0: Now, when you look across the globe, uh, do you see uh, there a a causal relationship? So when uh, girls are able to continue with schooling, uh, that they're not having uh, babies as young or having as many children?
4: Yeah, that's right. Um, A lot of my work being the partner of global health and population, a lot of my work has been in, um, in Africa. And there we're still looking at sort of the making sure that girls are completing school um, and looking at um, teen pregnancies and making sure that we don't see those high rates of teen pregnancies because it ends up for bad outcomes for the mother and and the child. And so what we see there is that um, if we can get girls to stay in school, then they do choose to do that and they're able to delay their their first marriage and uh, their first birth. And this ends up being great for the girls in terms of being able to complete their education and jump onto a trajectory of uh, high-skilled work instead of just being in the cycle of not completing high school, getting low-skilled jobs. um, And um, this ends up just sort of being their trajectory for life of this low-skilled work. Mm -hmm. And it then becomes very hard to jump um, from the low-skilled trajectory to the high-skilled trajectory as as you keep going along.
0: Uh, When uh, we look at some of the research that you've done with uh, African countries, so the ability to continue with education uh, limits uh, um, the fertility rate, but at the same time they need more than that. They also need support. Can you talk about the Malawi example?
4: Yeah. Yeah, So um, Sarah Baird did some really important research in Malawi, um, looking at how to promote keeping girls in school and how this impacts um, delaying their first marriage and delaying uh, their first birth. And she found two really important outcomes. One is that it's not just education as in, let's put the girls in school and keep them protected from um, the the perils of society, of, of the adult roles of society, of marriage and childbearing. But the education really needs to be high quality. Um, they need to have high quality education so that they can go on to get really good jobs. And also girls can't just do it by themselves. So. You can't just say to a girl, oh, okay, you, you go off and do your education. If you want to do it, that's great for you. It really has to be something that's supported by the community and something that becomes really valued by the community um, and their future partners. It's, it's a road to empowerment, but they can't uh, travel by themselves. They need the community to support them in that.
0: Uh, when we think about uh, community support, also uh, certain policies in place within government uh, to support families. We know that there's a continuing discussion about paid family leave that's necessary mm-hmm. in this country, as well as uh, that conversation is happening in states, also here uh, in Connecticut. And in terms of uh, when when we talk about uh, discrimination, uh, when women uh, become pregnant or discrimination against mothers, what are we seeing uh, in other countries about how uh, they are treated or even if there's a wage gap that persists
4: yeah I feel like uh, there has been a lot of uh, research on this and um, Natalie talked a little bit about this earlier in the in the program about this gender discrimination and I think one of the things that's uh, really important it's not just um, you know you can look after your baby for three months or one month and then return to work and everything is exactly like it was before and I think some research has been um, shown that it's it's not always necessarily a gender discrimination story, but it's the fact that women now have uh, dependents and it doesn't make them as flexible uh, in their workforce participation as what they were be- before they had the, the baby. And so, you know... Um, being able to work overtime, um, a few nights a week, or you know suddenly something random comes up at work and you need to work on it uh, until midnight, um, women with dependents just aren't going to be able to do that with um, flexibility. If so they need to go home and uh, relieve the nanny or pick the kids up from from daycare. Mm. And so I think the research um, advanced a little bit from just thinking about gender discrimination to seeing, well, what is the nature of the job and how can women juggle that in their lives
0: um, and have dependents
4: and be able to keep their job?
0: Are we seeing a change in this idea of default parent, if you could describe what that is?
4: Yeah I, I feel like um, in families where there is pressure you have to and we've heard from families about the financial pressure um, of raising children and so definitely need to work and often having the dual income uh, is needed to be able to raise a family but within the family unit you're going to have to make decisions about well who who's going to be the frontline parent who's going to be the one dropping off every day or picking up every day. Who's going to be the one who sacrifices their job if one of the children gets sick? And um, I think this often falls to the woman. So it's either because of just a natural um, historical gender role assignment or it could be that um, the, couple, the person in the couple who earns the most, you decide, well, let's protect their career and the other person in the couple will, um, will be the one who um, is the default parent, who the one who always gets to sacrifice um, their job hours.
0: Dr. Jocelyn Finlay is Senior Research Scientist in the Department of Global Health and Population at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. She studies the sociology of fertility and looks at how education and career choices interact when people decide to start a family. Dr. Finlay, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. We'll send out a link out for more about this research. Great. Thank you, Lucy. And you can find that uh, at Where We Live. Uh, I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskov. Special thanks to Jason, our intern, and uh, Jason Perez, I should say, and our technical producer, Kion Wolf. On Thursday, we have one of the first uh, uh, gubernatorial candidates to come on the show uh, this cycle before uh, the August 14th primary, and that's Democratic-endorsed candidate Ned Lamont. We're going to be on Facebook Live. He'll be here in studio, and we want to hear your questions for him. That's Thursday. Thanks for listening.